Hear now the words of the Savior from John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then further on down, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for Jesus and we thank you that he is our savior. He is our king. And Father, he is our priest who stands before you to make intercession for us. And so now we trust in him and we trust in you to send your Holy Spirit to fill us so that we might hear your word clearly. Deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman, amen. amen. People of God, as you know, Americans... And American Christians, as a subset of Americans, we are very idiosyncratic about ceremony. We are very inconsistent about the way we view the relevance and the importance and the weight of ritual. On the one hand, we want to come off as very carefree, as very casual. It's a badge of honor for us to throw off constricting order. We like to point at the, uh, the royals and the nobles of Europe and, uh, and laugh at the silliness of their pomp and ostentatious behavior. It, it all looks like nonsense to us to a degree. And so when it's our turn to get a hold of ritual, in fact, when we get a hold of funerals and weddings, we do them our own way. Nobody's going to tell us what to say. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. We're going to do it with our words, with our innovations. I remember presiding over the funeral of an uncle in Mississippi where all the pallbearers wore Budweiser t-shirts, matching Budweiser t-shirts. And uh, before the sermon, we sat in the funeral parlor and listened to a recording of a Merle Haggard song, just sitting there meditating while uh, Merle sang. I love Merle Haggard, but not in a funeral. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't fit. But but see, that's, it's our ceremony, right? It's ours. We'll do whatever we want. A, a wedding, right? It's just a big party. It's, it's unnecessary, we're quick to add in our, it's an unnecessary ritual. It's an un, unnecessary uh, ceremony. I don't need a piece of paper to tell you I love you, baby, right? I don't, I don't need a big party with all of our relatives to prove to you how much I 
how much I love you. And since we view it as so inconsequential, it doesn't matter what we do and it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter how we dress and it doesn't matter how we dance or where we have it. it weddings and funerals are, are in particular are, are when people largely get to pick the liturgy for themselves. And you can always tell how well someone is trained by the church, by the kind of funeral liturgy they want or the kind of wedding liturgy they, they want. Uh, and, and you can tell how well they've been trained in propriety by the kinds of things they ask for. Uh, so while we take some things very lightly and some things are not serious at all to us, there are other things, there are other ceremonies that are very important to us and you better not mess with them. You dare not res uh, disrespect, you dare not disrespect our national ceremonies, our national liturgies. You must stand for the anthem. You must place your hand over your heart. You must not show disrespect for our flag in any way. As one of my friends pointed out this last week in, in a conversation, he said, it's interesting how you can get a group of Christians from all denominations together who may not be comfortable eating at the Lord's table together. They may not commune together, but if you uh, lead them in the, na in, the, in the national anthem or you lead them in the Pledge of Allegiance, they'll all find a point of unity around that. They'll all instantly cover their hearts and stand. Now, is that the point of unity Jesus gave us? Is that where our unity lies or is it in his table? You see how we're so idiosyncratic about it. We're so twisted and upside down. And while uh, honor to nation has its place, um, certainly we put that in uh, pri uh, under the priority of our honor uh, toward the church and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But so we, we still want some order and we still want some regality in graduation ceremonies. It's hilarious to me that the same people who dress like children for four years, who, who wear pajamas and jeans to class, then want to dress in a robe for their graduation. It, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, we, we just, we have, we're confused. American Christians have tracked this double-mindedness into the church over the past couple hundred years. And it's not only diminished the worship of the church, the music of the church, but also Christians' perspective on the sacraments have been diminished. We, we want to keep our confidence in them very low. We want to hold them very lightly. We want to talk about what the sacraments don't do, what they can't accomplish. We want to we point where, you know, you could... Uh, we, we do this to the point where you could grow up in the church thinking that they're altogether unnecessary, as if the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism are, are just tacked on to the Christian life. The ritual that's most important, the evangelical church says, the ritual that is most vital is your personal experience. You must have a personal experience that is meaningful to you. As abstract and as undefined as experiences can be, that process, that ceremony, if you can call it a ceremony, is vital. But these other things the Lord has given us, water, bread, wine, well, we can take them or leave them. What's essential is your personal experience. The, the bread, the water, the wine, it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change anything. The outside can't affect the inside, or so we think. And the inside is all that matters. The truth is, however, that all ceremonies, even poorly performed ceremonies, all ceremonies change us. We are transformed from one thing to another by ceremony, by ritual. A wedding changes us from being a single man or a single woman 
into, it changes us into a husband or a wife. You may say after your wedding, well, I don't feel any different. Well, that's fine. We weren't here to change your feelings. We were here to change your status. You are now a husband. You have a new identity. You have new responsibilities. You have a new calling. You have new privileges. You have new boundaries. Physical intimacy with your fiance on the morning of the wedding would have been fornication. Physical intimacy with your fiance tonight is, is the, the, the sacrament of marriage. It is, it is a blessing. It is a sign and seal of the marital covenant. And if you sin against that covenant, if you leave that covenant of marriage and you don't keep your vows, we don't shake our heads and mutter, well, I guess you were never really a husband. Well, I guess you were never really a wife. No, we don't say that. No, you were a husband. You are a husband. You continue to be a husband and a bad one at that. You are an unfaithful husband, but yet a husband. Ceremonies change us. They transform us. They change our identity. On Friday, a new president took an oath of office. That ceremony made it official, and it placed upon him the responsibility of leadership. He wasn't the president on Monday. He wasn't the president this past December. But after he took the oath, he assumed a new identity. A new burden of responsibility was placed upon him. And whether he feels like it or not, whether or not something unseen changes inside of him, he is the new president. The oath of office is not an empty sign. Rather, it is a vow that he takes to enter into a new covenant, a new relationship with new boundaries and new commitments. We know this to be true. And yet we, American evangelicals, we keep turning, uh, turning back to uh, our ceremonies that Jesus gave us, our sacraments, and, and we, keep, we keep talking about them as if they are empty, as if they really don't change anything. We've heard for so long that they're just pictures that they really don't do anything or make a difference. Because after all, as I said a minute ago, the real me is deep within myself. That me, that me, that inner me is at a remove from my physical body. And there's no way you can get to that through water. There's no way you can get to the inner me through bread or through wine. How can a ritual like baptism or communion change the real me inside. So we then say they're, they're empty, they're just signs. They, they just point to a certain theology. They point to a theology of baptism. They point to a theology of communion. And then it's very easy then to separate children from them because they can't understand the theology. Because they can't understand the theology of baptism, then it's not for them. Because they can't understand the theology of communion, it's not for them, right? Only if you can articulate the theology do these things become efficacious. Only then do they do you any good. Well, wherever we got that sort of thinking, and we've got it, but wherever we got it, we didn't get it by soaking up the scriptures. And we didn't get it by thinking in biblical terms. The Bible speaks of our covenant relationship with God as something we enter formally, visibly, externally through the door of baptism. And it's a covenant relationship that is renewed and kept alive at the communion table. These things don't happen apart from faith. They don't happen apart from a life change, certainly not. But these are the tangible means. These are the concrete, visible means by which we are joined to the Lord Jesus, to his body, and by which our faith is confirmed. 
Last time we were together, before the ice storm or the snow, and before I left to go to Maine, uh, remember, we, uh, I started this short series on the church and, and her sacraments and her membership. And so last time we were together, we, we saw the importance of the church to our eternal life, the, the importance of the church to our salvation. We saw throughout the scriptures that God always saves a people. He delivers a community who are gathered to him by faith. The church is not simply a Bible club. The church is not some civic group. It's, it's, the church is the body and bride of Christ. It's where we meet him. It's where we commune with him and share in his life. We read in Galatians where, where Paul said that the, the Jerusalem from above, which we take to mean the church, that that is our mother. And, and then we read Calvin and Cyprian and Luther who said they were bold enough to say, if you do not have the church as your mother, you do not have God as your father. Now, now this week, I want to continue and I want to explore how we are admitted to that visible public community, that, that visible community and how we're renewed and encouraged by our connection to her. And we are, we are admitted and renewed in our covenant primarily by the sacraments. The Bible teaches very plainly and very clearly that it is baptism that unites us publicly to Jesus and, and unites us to his body by the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is not an empty ceremony. It's not a meaningless ceremony. It is the right. It is, it is the, the sacrament that truly changes us. It delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and death into the kingdom of light and life. Baptism marks our separation from our covenant head, Adam, and joins us to our new covenant head, Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12, we hear Paul say, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. We read that last time. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Baptism is an act of God's Holy Spirit through his church, through his ministers, which seals our relationship to the community of the triune God. When we are baptized, we are put into the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, in baptism, we have put on Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We are in baptism, united to him and to his church, which, which is his body. Listen to what, what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We say, how can that happen? It's just water. No, that's not, it's not simply, it's not simply water. He says, you have been baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. Now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Baptism is our doorway. It is our initiation. It is our connection to the promises of God in Abraham and in Jesus. Romans 6 says, baptism unites us to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Here's Romans 6, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
so profound over and over this connection between the waters of baptism and our union with Jesus. So profound that the scriptures don't hesitate to use the language of salvation and washing and cleansing when it comes to baptism. In Titus 3, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. By the way, the only two times the word regeneration is used in our English Bible uh, has to do with something other than an unseen inward Holy Spirit flipping a switch from one thing to another. I've always found that, found it interesting. We've got this theological term, regeneration that we use in a in a very systematic way but the way that it's used in our english bible is is it's not used that way one time jesus uses it for the new creation he talks about the regeneration as a as a as a realm as a place and then here in titus where we read about the washing of regeneration so we have to we have to use language the way the bible uses it and not necessarily always rely on the on the theological uh category that that has has grown uh its own definition over the centuries. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So in baptism, the Holy Spirit gives to us the gift and the promise of new life. We've all read Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus many times, and we remember how Jesus explains to this righteous, God-fearing Jew that, that something's required of him. Something's required of Nicodemus more than simply submitting to Jesus as a teacher, something more. And Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't make sense to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus replies, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. To be born again, Jesus explains, is to be born of water and of spirit. Jesus joins two things together then that are necessary for new life, water and spirit. And for us to separate the two and to say there's something that happens with water that has nothing to do with something that happens with the spirit is for us to divide two things that Jesus puts together. We're talking about the words of the Savior here. We're not, we're not talking about some, you know, 12th century formulation. Jesus puts these things together. If it was Jesus' intent that we not mix up our understanding of water and the Spirit, then he would have separated them. He could have easily left out the water. Yet he joined the two together and he said, these two things must be present if you are to have the new birth. When does water and the Spirit come together? When do these things get put together? Any other time than in Christian baptism. That's the only time that the Spirit works in such a way through water. Well, you might be thinking, and I know that I'm, this is kind of a whirlwind through these passages, that we need to camp out on each one of them, obviously, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, uh, piling them up to, to help you to see the, the, the common thread that runs through all of them, which you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound right. That certainly doesn't sound reformed, right? I mean, reformed theology is all about a secret hidden change deep in the heart of man. It has nothing to do with some, some outward physical sacramental change, right? Is that right? No, <laughs> it's not. The second Helvetic Confession, which is uh, one of the oldest... Um, post-Reformation confessions. It says, to be baptized in the name of Christ 
is to be enrolled, entered, and received into the covenant and family, and so into the inheritance of the sons of God, and that's the promises that Paul talks about. Yes, and in this life to be called after the name of God, that is to say, to be called a son of God, to be cleansed also from the filthiness of sins and to be granted the manifold grace of God in order to lead a new and innocent life. God, who is rich in mercy, freely cleanses us from our sins by the blood of his son and in him adopts us to be his sons and by a holy covenant joins us to himself and enriches us with various gifts that we might live a new life. He says, I mean, the confession, this is still the Vedic confession, says all these things are assured by baptism for inwardly we are regenerated, purified and renewed by God through the Holy Spirit and outwardly we receive the assurance of the greatest gifts in the water by which also those great benefits are represented and as it were, set before our eyes to be beheld. The Westminster Confession is thought to be, you know, a little bit uh, more modern on this and, and more Puritan, but, but the Westminster Confession says this, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. So, so it's, it's the sacrament for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up to God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. And listen to this. By right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost, to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. In, in John Calvin Strasburg Catechism, it's, you know, a catechism is question and answer. In John Calvin's Catechism in Strasburg, he says, uh, question, how do you know yourself to be a son of God in fact as well as in name? What is the answer? How do you know yourself to be a son of God in fact as well as in name? The answer is, because I am baptized in the name of God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In his Geneva Catechism, uh, Calvin writes, is baptism nothing more than a mere picture of cleansing? What is the answer? I think it to be such a symbol that the reality is attached to it. For God does not disappoint us when he promises us his gifts. Hence, both pardon of sins and newness of life are certainly offered and received by us in baptism. I just have one more. John Knox wrote in the Scots Confession. It says, John Knox, he says, by baptism, we are engrafted into Christ Jesus to be made partakers of his righteousness by which our sins are covered and remitted. So the great catechisms and the great Reformed confessions openly speak this way about baptism, that baptism is our entrance into and our partaking of the life of Jesus. Now, the argument doesn't simply rest on the catechisms and the confessions, but you see how we get there in, in the understanding where the scriptures take us. We're not only formally brought into relationship with the Lord Jesus in baptism, but we maintain and we renew that covenant with him in communion, which this too, communion also is more than just an empty ritual, an empty sign. At the beginning, I read Jesus' words from John 6. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, where he says, I want you to feed yourself on me. And, and, and Jesus says, if you come to me, you'll never hunger. 
And then Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, if he says that, I want to stop and say, okay, I want to make sure I've got life, right? I want to, I want to make sure that whatever, whatever he's talking about is something I, I have. He says, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats this, blood, uh, eats this bread will live forever. And right away, the disciples say, oh, okay, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? But later on, he clarifies it when he sits down at a table with them. And at the last supper before his crucifixion, Jesus takes bread and he says, this is my body. And he passes him a cup and says, this is my blood. This is what he was talking about earlier when he made that profound statement. The ritual meal he gives us follows that pattern of the Old Testament sacrifices that we've looked at so many times. These Old Testament sacrifices, which were renewals of covenant, Jesus follows that pattern at the table and says, this is our, now this is how we renew covenant with our God in heaven. Now Jesus is the sacrifice. His body and blood are symbolized by the bread and wine. And just as the sacrifice in the old covenant was consumed by both the priest and the worshiper and by God as the smoke went up, so now we consume the sacrifice of Jesus in the form of bread and wine. This meal continually sets before our eyes the 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 covenant promises of God. And it's a sign between God and us that we are the redeemed ones. We are the ones covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. We are the ones united to his death and and resurrection. God gives us covenant signs as a witness between his people and him to remind us and him of his promises. And you say, that might sound kind of funny. Why, Why does God need to be reminded? God doesn't need to be reminded of things, does he? Well, no, not in the way that you and I, you know, tie a string around our finger. If anybody does that anymore, sets an alert on your cell phone to remind you of something. God doesn't need that kind of reminding. But remember when he established the rainbow in the heavens, what was that for? He said, this is the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring a cloud over the earth, a rainbow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant between me and you. I will look on the rainbow to remember it as an everlasting covenant. The the rainbow is a memorial for us, yes, but it's also a memorial for God, for him to look on the rainbow and for him to say, yes, I made a promise. I committed myself. Despite my demand for justice and righteousness, I'm going to remember my covenant and I'm not going to destroy the earth with water as I did in in, in, uh, the, the early days of the earth. Baptism and communion then are memorials like the rainbow. They're memorials of the covenant. They cover us with the reminder of God's promise to save all those who are united to his son. The sacraments mark the entrance into the covenant and they continually set before us and before God the obligations of the covenant, our obligations to him and his to us. Of course, faith and repentance are not left out of this. We cannot forget about faith and repentance. Continuing life in the covenant and participating in the blessings of the covenant requires persevering faith in the faithful one. Jesus is the faithful one to whom we are united. Uh, As I read from John 6 earlier, uh, in John 6, Jesus says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then he says, I need you to eat this bread of life. Believing is eating. 
Eating is believing. If we were to receive the grace manifest in the sacraments, we must believe in the Lord Jesus. We must be faithful. And that means trusting in him completely, entirely, absolutely, and not in our own strength. Faithfulness is obedience to what he requires. It's repentance for our sins. This faith is not antithetical to the sacraments. It isn't like we have a puzzle here. What is the basis of our relationship to Jesus? Is it, is it faith or is it sacrament? And, and, and as if these are two things that are set at odds to one another. It's not either or. It's not one or the other. Faith, by the way, in the Bible is not simply an intellectual thing. Faith is not uh, an inner secret hidden thing. Faith is faithfulness. Faith is receiving and resting in all that God has for you. And that includes his means of grace. Next time we're together, I want to talk more about the problem of faithlessness in the covenant. What do we say about those for whom faith uh, doesn't take root, for whom the seed doesn't take root, rather? It doesn't produce fruit. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't manifest itself the way we want to see it. People who leave the faith, but they were baptized. What, what's going on there? We'll delve into that next time. <clears throat> but the fact that there are those who leave the faith the fact that there are apostates who trample on God's mercies, those who presume upon God's goodness, it doesn't change a thing about what God says he does and what he accomplishes through the signs and seal of his covenant. We, we don't begin with disbelief and work our way backwards. We don't say, well, there are these apostates, so, so we start there and now let's work backwards to God's promises. No, we begin with the tangible demonstration of God's covenant mercies to us, word and water, bread and wine, which transcend our feelings. They transcend our doubts, our experiences. These things are God's verifiable, concrete signs to us. They're signs to us that we belong to him and he to us. They are present and real, even when we don't feel as if there's any change taking place in us. And, and, and I, 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 go through this and I, we're, we're spending time on this because these things are always under attack. These foundational uh, beliefs are, are always under attack from, from a, not only from a world that you know, doesn't think that uh, those things that mark us and those things that are important to us are, uh, they, they don't think they do anything, but I'm talking about the church. Evangelical Christians don't believe that, that baptism and communion are of any substance at all. And so when you talk to people and you talk to your friends, they, they, don't, they don't think that this stuff is, um, is critical. But you need to remember, child of God, and you need to know that in your baptism, the Lord Jesus has indeed marked you out. He has visibly publicly separated you from the world of death and darkness. Adam is no longer your head. The curse of Adam is no longer upon you. Eternal judgment is no longer your destination. You have been delivered over to the kingdom of light. Just as surely as Israel passed through the Red Sea away from the slavery and darkness of Egypt, and they became a new priestly nation, so you have passed over. Just as he fed them in the wilderness with the bread from heaven, so you now feed on this heavenly bread, as Jesus says in John 6. Child of God, then, since this is true, 
Don't go backwards. Don't identify with that old kingdom. Don't act like you belong back there. Don't adopt their attitudes. Don't become infatuated with the things that they love. Don't knit your heart together with the things that are dying. Don't long for the things that are doomed for destruction. Your baptism has indeed transformed you into a new person with new responsibilities. You have a new calling, you have a new identity, and it is upon you, it is your responsibility to embrace this identity and in so doing, embrace the Lord Jesus and embrace his life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to strengthen us in our faith, as we keep these signs and seals of the covenant before us, continue to build us up by your Holy Spirit. Father, give us courage and give us uh, uh, fiber for, for our, our being. Give us, give us uh, the, the ability to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel by your Holy Spirit. That knowing who we are and knowing this body that, that you have connected us to, uh, that this, this, this church who will, in fact, be victorious uh, in the world and in history, that you have strengthened her and you have given her this calling. So, Father, impress this upon each of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.